Thank you for listening to the Roundtable Consult, where we discuss political and social issues that matter to you from a spiritual, medical, and legal perspective. Join the conversation with your host, Attorney Sonia Madison and Dr. Mark Williams. Welcome to the Roundtable Consult. I am your host, Dr. Mark Williams, and I'm joined as always by my wonderfully talented cousin and co-host, Attorney Sonia Madison. How you doing, Sonia? I'm doing well, despite hearing that Nikki Haley is now putting her hand in the hat for the president (laughs) (laughs) and and claiming to be the change that South Carolina needed as it related to that Confederate flag. Oh, my gosh. She well, it's interesting. She did throw out the slam. She said everybody 75 years and older should (laughs) undergo a mental confidence. Just come on right out there and say I'm I'm willing to age discriminate against people. Right, and right, so. right. Among other things, I mean, the, it's it's crazy because I mean, before Trump, I would have thought she was a, a decent governor. I mean, had no issues, but now it's just if the ridiculousness that comes out of her mouth since aligning with Trump is is crazy. Ridiculousness sells the in the Republican Party. <laughs> yeah, it sells in the Republican Party these days. It's interesting. Don Lemon got in trouble for saying something. So Nikki Haley said um, that uh, America isn't past its prime. Its its leaders just are. And <laughs> and I think Don Lemon made a big faux pas and said, "Well, she's past her prime." Just <laughs> like for a woman, women they say women reached their prime in the twenty thirties and forties. <laughs> I don't know what he was thinking. Open mouth, insert foot. (laughs) He did apologize, but I don't know what he was thinking when he said that. Yeah, well, well, we appreciate Don Lemon and everything that he does for uh, advancing the the presence and the image of Black men in society, but uh, he sort of like messed it up a little bit on that one. (laughs) (laughs) So how about you? How's it going in Nashville? Is it cold yet? Uh, actually, Nashville has gotten quite cold. So we, um, interesting. It's, um, <laughs> it's gotten quite cold in Nashville and, um, we <laughs> give me one second here. <laughs> Our producer, I tell you, well, no, we're going to hire a new one. <laughs> you know, people just drop in on the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so that's cool but um but no nashville has been uh it was actually in the 70s or so uh earlier this week and then all of a sudden it dropped down to getting freezing in nashville and i think we had some snow flurries yesterday and maybe the early oh, wow. part of today so yeah, nothing that accumulates but it'll be back up in the 60s tomorrow or something like that so that's what <laughs> i'm excited about and all right yeah. <laughs> you know for some reason my body doesn't do well with drastic changes in temperature sometimes i end up getting sick yeah well that's what happens when you start getting older sonia that's i mean i'm too. glad you're to tell you're here to tell me <laughs> what would they say they say black don't crack so we're glad about that <laughs> But hey, what I wanted to do, I want to hurry up and go ahead and get into this conversation today because uh, we've got some uh, pretty impressive gentlemen on the on the field, I mean, on the show this morning, and uh, I want to make sure that we get as much time with them as possible because uh, these are some inspiring men that I've 
had the privilege of meeting and uh, befriending over the past year. Um, I told you 2022 was my year of actually establishing and maintaining um, meaningful friendships. And and these are <laughs> certainly some of the gentlemen that uh, my what I call my band of brothers here. And so I'm so excited to be able to welcome to the show today uh, some of these gentlemen. One will join us a little bit later, and uh, but they are all impressive and and men of character, integrity in their own right. So let me get right on into introducing. The first one is Thomas Kennard. Uh, Thomas has been in the transportation industry for a total of about 24 years. He's currently the assistant vice president of, of dry cargo sales uh, at Ingram Barge Company. He's the largest, it's the largest inland barge company in the nation. Uh, this other thing that I love about this brother is he's been married now to the same woman for the past 20 years. In June, it will be 20 years. And uh, together they have uh, four children. So welcome to the show, Thomas Kennard. Hey, thanks. thanks, Dr. Mark. I appreciate you bringing me on. Great. We also have coming into the show um, <laughs> another brother friend of mine. His name is Maurice Lawrence Jr., he is. He has a background in information technology and currently manages incidents uh, for a Fortune 500 company. He is also the COO and co-owner of 360 Dermatology. It's the first and only direct pay practice, dermatologic practice that specializes in skincare and hair loss for people of color. Uh, his most proud accomplishment, however, is that he is the father of a very active and smart young man or young boy <clears throat> and um, enjoys a couple of other things, you know, among other things, uh, among wearing these other hats that he has. He also, excuse me, enjoys tinkering around with cards and, and racing events. Uh, Maurice, welcome to the show, my friend. This is my Jamaican brother here. <laughs> well, go on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hey, good morning, everyone. <laughs> yes. And then we also have my other brother, my brother from another mother, uh, Dr. Ronald Baker. Dr. Ronald Baker is, I think he's probably one of the fewest and only of a, a small group of orthopedic surgeons who are um, around the country here. It's a very small population, a group of people. We call him a black unicorn. Because uh, we don't get to see that many of them in this field as well. Frankly, all of us uh, on this show today are black unicorns. But uh, Ronald Baker is an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, for many years, he he operated his own practice and then also served as a professor or assistant professor at um, Meharry Medical College. Correct me if I'm wrong on the title there. I apologize. Uh, but recently, he he left Meharry uh, over the past several years and now has been engaged in some. Uh, private ventures. He is CEO of a uh, logistics and transportation company, but he continues to carry on in his orthopedic practice as well. Um, much like myself, we all have to find other ways to uh, make money in the field of medicine today because me, I'm selling CDs out of the trunk of my car. <laughs> you know, you got to get your hustle up. Yeah. CDs. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Got to make the ends meet. Ronald, welcome to the Roundtable Consult. Yeah, hello. hello, everyone. Well, right. good. 
and we will have one other brother joining us later and I'll introduce him as he as he gets to join in he's out actually conducting business right now and he's got another recent accomplishment that I know he's excited about and he's finishing up tying up some of the loose ends this morning and hopefully we'll be able to join us a little bit later in the conversation but gentlemen welcome to the show um I'm happy to have you on there because, I, as I said, I consider you guys my band of brothers, and I think, at least from my from my standpoint, it's very important uh, for each of us to be able to have not just uh, some brothers uh, that we can hang out with and you know chat with, shoot the breeze with, talk about sports. But one of the things that I appreciate about appreciate about each of you is that you have your individual uh, expertise and talents. You've excelled in your field. You've been motivated. And and you've actually accomplished. And and so I want to first of all, let me just get a little bit about your your background and your journey. Thomas, if you don't mind sharing us a little bit about how does somebody, particularly a person of color, wind up finding themselves in the field of logistics and and and, and shipping like this oh, and then very, work its way up to management? Very carefully. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, I, I, I'd actually uh, spent some time about six years as a corporate travel agent. So we, we were moving people around the country and not necessarily freight. And I spent uh, a, a, another four year stint in, in uh, finance and uh, in Ford Motor Credit for a while there. And then I jumped into this line of work, which was completely foreign to me. And I spent 10 years in logistics, learning the Inland River system and how the transportation of freight gets moved around this country. Uh, we play a pretty big piece in supply chain management. We move some 55 million tons of raw materials around this country annually, which is a, a, a really large number. Um, so a lot of, of, of construction related materials, as you talk about shovel ready uh, projects and, and, th and things like that, and we feed the world. So the, uh, the United States is the largest exporter of grains, soybeans and corn. And so we, we literally feed we literally feed the world. So I, it, it was difficult getting into this um, position. I, I, I guess really the, the Lord is in everything because a, a black man walking into this kind of environment, it's very insular, very uh, very uh, patriarchal, very um, uh, nepotistic, if you will. If you didn't grow up around the river in a lot of country towns, it's hard to break into this environment. And I kind of slipped in the back door and they couldn't push me away. <laughs> so it's a uh, but it's been a it's 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 been a labor of love. I really enjoyed it. Um, breaking into management was 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 difficult. You, you have to sometimes do a lot of things that other people aren't willing to do. So I I, li I left my wife and kids in Nashville. I moved to Cincinnati for two mm -hmm. years um, to learn the the commercial side of the business. Um, my portfolio when I first took it over, of course, was the lowest performing portfolio of any sales manager they'd ever had. I was the first uh, person of color to ever be uh, in the commercial environment to even have an opportunity to get there in my company and I'm currently the only uh, African-American in the entire industry that does what I do um, so in, in, in this leadership capacity so I, I, I moved my, myself I left my wife and kids in Nashville and um, and commuted back and forth for two years while I learned the, the commercial side of the business and and when I first got my slate and my, my portfolio of, of companies that I was dealing with we doubled the the production in, inside of a year, and within two years, we tripled, you know, the production of, of of that book of business, and came home sort of like the conquering hero, and and was able to prove what I, what my worth was, and within five years, I was leading that department. 
um, in, inside of our organization. So I, and I, I just attended a conference in New Orleans and was having a conversation with a couple of brothers because you don't really see many of us mm -hmm. in, in this field. And, uh, and and they were asking some of the similar questions. How the heck did you make it? <laughs> so, um, uh, there, there's a there's a story that I I, I, I like to bring up. Um, there's a, a I, I, I'm an HBCU uh, um, product. I went to Fisk All right. And in one of my African American heritage classes, my freshman year, there's a very famous picture of, of a lynching. It's two brothers that are hanging from a tree, mm -hmm. and this crowd of white people that are that are um, uh, witnessing this a uh, very terrible uh, terroristic tragedy. But if you look really closely, there's a third noose that's hanging there. And the story is told that that brother, the third brother that was that was hanging up was a Mason. And the Masons that were in the lynch mob could not stand to see another Mason be lynched and, and be treated in that, that, that way. And it superseded the, the, their racist behavior and they, they took him down. And so I tend to think about that because when I walked into this organization, I came in at a relatively, it wasn't an entry level position. And so I think that the, my station has gained me entry more so than the color of my skin. And mm. just like that brother, his station gained him his freedom and his life and spirit, his life more than the color of his skin. So sometimes we just slide into situations that, uh, that, that give us an opportunity to thrive. Wow, that's good. That's good. Hey, Ronald, I uh I didn't mention that you also have a, a wonderful and beautiful wife, uh, smart, talented, and everything else. Uh, I don't know how I can't remember how long you guys have been married. It's been twenty five years. Uh, twenty three years. Twenty three years. Twenty three years. They have four wonderful children as well. Uh, you might have seen his wife join in the conversation briefly earlier. <laughs> but, uh, but but Ronald, Ronald, his wife is also a physician, and so why don't you tell us a little bit about the transition where you have now? You've seen a variety of different uh, aspects of medicine, and and I know you, you're a networker. Uh, in fact, it, the reason why I got to meet these other gentlemen was because of my association with Ronald. And and I think everybody else in this chat will tell you Ronald knows a little bit about everybody. And so you know how they say you got six degrees of separation. If you if Ronald is in that degree, you probably only have about two or three degrees of separation because this man is very well connected. And we, we tease him about it a lot, but I think it's very important because you know, along the along the journey, you make certain connections that become important and influential in your progress. As Thomas said before, sometimes it's your station in life and having those connections to be able to open those types of doors. And I know you are uh, a door opener, not just uh, in your profession, but also in your in your uh, endeavors to be a mentor, not just a mentor to uh, to, to students who were at Meharry Medical College for however many years you were there, but also a mentor of people um, in a variety of different fields. And so why don't you tell us a little bit about your journey there as well? Well, um, <laughs> I don't know. I, um, I, well, thanks for the, um, the compliment uh, regarding that. I don't see it as anything, I think, special or abnormal to um, connect people. I think that uh, connections have been a help for me in my life. And, you know, and as we, do in our faith, we want to pass things on and help the next person. So it doesn't seem unusual to not or to want to help someone else um, pull them along. 
and um, some of the same principles in those Thomas mentioned masonry, not ultimately part of um, the Masonic order as well. I didn't know that he knew that story, but that's, that's thank you very much. <laughs> and in, in addition to that story, you probably should read about Abdul Rahman, who was a Muslim um, slave prince. So it's a movie on it. I think Amazon has it. And he also, the Masons also helped him as well. And um, also many um, African-American men in the South were helped um, out of the South, including my father um, by that group. But I think in regards to um, the networking part of working together, I have always found, I feel blessed to have the opportunity to know you gentlemen. I was always impressed by all of you and our interaction. I think that um, my journey is a, not the typical journey toward medicine. And I think that my journey, um, I never started out wanting to be a doctor. I think some of that was probably some insecurity as well too. I think many of us as African-Americans or black people in general in this country have insecurities and we don't really know if we're really good enough. Then we develop this so-called imposter syndrome at times, and which it affects our, you know, our, our confidence. And I think that I was always amazed by how some of my colleagues along the, the journey at various levels would be so confident about things. Um, and I'm speaking of some of my, you know, my white colleagues, men in particular, Sometimes they wouldn't know the right answer, but still would come off as if they knew exactly what they're talking about. And, and you know, it's almost like the, the Trump syndrome. You know, he could lie, he could tell what he, he knows what he's talking about, or it sounds like he knows what he's talking about, and so people buy into it. So I think that I think that what I find to be most important for African Americans or people of color, I'm gonna stick, I'd say black um, from that standpoint. I found that we're so divided over so many petty things. Um, and I think having an opportunity to grow up in a place like Miami, Florida, where I'm from, which has a, a um, rich history from an um, African-American standpoint, but also for rich from a Caribbean-American um, um, standpoint as well. But I found that sometimes those histories were not known. And I found that people were hung up on so many small things. And if we took time to look at the similarities between our groups, we were able to come together. Um, and I found that also within, you know, the organization I'm involved in, in Miami. And I think that um, even in medical school, as my wife can attest to, we would work to, what helped us get through, so four people in her class, four in my class, what helped us get through was working together. Um, and there's always, we talked about how do we avoid being ashamed to reach out, as Thomas would said, to that one of the brother who may be inside the locker room or inside the a meeting or banquet or, or dinner party, and you don't want to seem like you're, you don't want to be pigeonholed into being the guy who only talks to black people. You, you try to avoid that. So sometimes we try our best to act like we don't know someone else because we don't want someone white, because they will ask you, well, how come you, how, how do you know him? Uh, why do you know him? Or in the next meeting, they'll say, oh, there's a black guy here. We're going to talk to him. So you have this balancing act between trying to avoid um, being associated, but at the same time, trying to assist someone else. Um, I credit my mentors and my the people who helped me pull me up the ladder to wanting to help someone else. And if it wasn't for those individuals, I think that, yeah, we all have you know, intellect and we have, you know, we have strategy, we have grind, we have, we have all those things, but still someone speaking on your behalf is important. 
Nice. Uh, so Maurice, Maurice is uh, in information or spent most of his career, I think, in information technology. And uh, like I said, mentioned before, he's been working for Fortune 500 companies. And, and you know, I'm not exactly sure what the prevalence of many Black people is in information technology, but I, I've never come across very many of them. It's certainly not those who have begun to... Uh, uh, climb the ladder in their positions as well. So Maurice, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about your transition uh, into and or from information technology if you are transitioning from it right now. I know you know you recently just acquired a new role as the COO of a dermatology practice, but uh, let us know about some of your transition. And, and, I, and I hope what's, what people are, are gathering from some of this is that we all start off in a certain path and somehow or another, there, there, there seems to be a disruption of that path. And just because we started on one particular path doesn't necessarily mean that that's the way that we're going to end up. Opportunities come about along the course that helps to shape. And if we had never done to help to shape our direction, if we had never taken the first steps, the subsequent ones would never have come. But tell us a little bit about your transition as well. Yeah, no problem. I agree. And can you guys hear me? Right. Yes. Okay, yeah, th thanks Mark for that uh, warm introduction. Uh, so, of course, as you stated, I'm your Caribbean friend, right? I'm, or the Jamaican in the group. Um, I know Jamaicans has a history of working multiple jobs, especially those who, you know, migrate to the States like I did. Um, and yeah, I, I am currently uh, meeting that right now, right? I am C CEO of the Dermatology Practice you mentioned. I'm also CEO of my IT company that I, that I own. Um, and I'm working with as a, almost like as like a consultant for the 500 company you're talking about. You mentioned in IT space under the major incident management um, and problem management realm. Uh, there is not many um, of us oftentimes in positions similar to that. Anything that has to do with a manager in the title, oftentimes I'm the only one in the room um, here in the States. So it, it is def definitely difficult and tricky. I, I am keeping... And I am staying in the IT space. I'm not transitioning from it. It's just that bringing this coming across the only trained dermatologist in the state of Tennessee, um, as in trained in treating skin of color. Um, I couldn't let that just slide, right? Where she would end up just working for a company and not build her own brand and, and reach others. And help to impact and, and motivate others, as, as I'm, I'm sure she's also passionate about. So that's how I ended up partnering with her on, the, on that venture. Um, how I got into IT was really, I started away from my passion of mechanical engineering and, and racing um, because I was like, I, I didn't want to go through incurring so much debt in college um, to be able to finish my degree. And I was good at fixing computers um, because I had bad ones growing up, right? I started with like an e machine. And anybody who knows anything about computers and e-machines knows that like the worst of the worst. They'd always have to fix it um, to get it to work, to, to be able to get my schoolwork done or anything like that. So that's how I ended up in IT. Um, there's, as I stated, not many of us in there. It is challenging. Uh, along the way, a lot of people will um, take your ideas, especially those confident folks that, that like what um, Ronald had mentioned in his, his speech, they'll take your ideas and run with it, right, and take credit for it. Hmm. And then you get looked on as a, the bitter black person if you say anything about it. That hey, it, you know, I mentioned it, and then you know nobody paid attention to it. But then when you gave them the details, they they presented it, and 
that got all the credit. And they had no shame in coming back to you over and over again, too. Um, but you just have to be aware of um, probing questions, right? You still have to be willing to be a team player, but um, there's times in which you, you just have to pray and, and make sure that before you divulge certain information and, and, and things that you're working on doing, that it is mature and you have and you can present it to yourself um, to get ahead of that. But yeah, as far as opening doors and getting here myself personally, I started by opening my own parts and distribution company when I was right out of college. And then my IT support as well, doing that on my own because no one would hire me and give me the, the work myself. So I had to go find work myself. Um, so I got that inspiration from family and friends who they see growing up, I saw them as entrepreneurs as well. Like I have uncles, aunts, um, and, and other cousins who own their own business. And I, was, I said to myself, okay, if they can do it, I can. Um, and, and I'll just not wait for the, the handout. Because back then, straight out of college, I was maybe only making $12 an hour. And this is not very long ago. Um, and being in IT, as you know, that's severely underpaid. Um, nobody wanted to pay me or give me the opportunities to, to prove my, my worth until I started my own company and started supporting other small businesses, going to local um, SBA events. It wasn't got SBAs back then, but similar to what SBA has right now um, locally and sharing business cards and stuff like that and getting you know, one or two accounts and building that, that portfolio up is how I got into the door and was able to then speak for my, uh, my capabilities and now start working for five, Fortune 500 companies as a consultant or contractor. Well, I do, here's one of the things, and I'm glad, Ronald, you did bring this up, and I'd like to start the conversation out with this, and that is that uh, Ronald touched on something I think that's very important, and that's the insecurity that that seems to be pervasive uh, amongst a lot of us, particularly maybe, I can't speak for African-American women or Black women, but I do know yeah. that among... <laughs> <laughs> But I do know, you know, I, I, I can give, I can opine on it, but I won't. <laughs> but, but I do know what one of the strangest things was that uh, when I started medical school, probably like you, Ron, uh, I'm wondering like, man, am I smart enough to do this? Am I, I mean, I graduated, graduated second in my high school class, second in my undergraduate class. And I get into medical school and the thought comes to me, am I smart enough? Am I good enough to be able to do this? Can I succeed here? Are all of these other people much smarter than I am? And it, it became a bigger issue when I when I started to matriculate into the MD-PhD, the combined doc, the dual doctorate program. And, you know, I don't know if you if your parents were like my parents, but my parents have never told me that I was never good enough. They never told me that I was not smart uh, so I don't know where the message came. The message was never a covert message to say, hey, you cannot achieve. Everybody else who looks with fair, who has fairer skin is smarter, is better, is more able than you are. But my parents never instilled that message to me. And nobody ever frankly said that to me. But yet still, these things have uh, resonated within uh, within my subconscious and they start to impact how you perceive yourself. And, and if you really buy into that notion, it can really stifle you and disable you. And I call it, you know, I call it white supremacy. 
Because yes, you can be a black person and you can still have white supremacist thoughts. And the reason why is because these things are uh, constantly fed to us through what we see on television. And it's a subliminal type. It's, it's a covert indoctrination to believe that white has to be better. And now all of a sudden you find yourself in an arena that's predominated by white people and you start to question yourself and your own abilities. And if you don't say it out loud, and I've never really said it out loud before the past three years or so, I've never really disclosed how insecure I was about my ability despite having past success uh, at the start of medical school. Um, how do you, how do, what, what are your thoughts on that gentlemen? Any one of you or Sonia? <laughs> uh, I, I agree with what you're saying, Mark. I, I believe it is systematic. And I, I think my, my mentality and, and my behavior and, and even what led me here today is fortunately for me growing up in Jamaica, right? Um, coming up from where, you know, I, I, I settled in the country, you know, with, um, we had our own um, chicken coop, <laughs> raising chickens, we had goats and pigs and all that stuff um, at the house. And that's kind of what some of the stuff we did to, to kind of survive, right? Um, but even going through school and everything else, everyone I saw, majority of people I saw, um, even I had this discussion yesterday, were, were black pe people in charge. Um, white people were the minority, even though they had most of the wealth on the island, um, or the fairer skin, as you might, what you might call it. But there was a lot of successful black people around me, even in school. This, even though some of them, um, in, in teachers had told me that I'm not about anything, I was able to not let those words directly affect me, but having peers and seeing people do stuff because we're social creatures, right? So seeing people like me being successful has helped me tremendously. But even then, despite that, walking into rooms where I'm the only one, I feel insecure at times. Don't know what to say, feel uncomfortable, feel out of space, like unwanted or, or, or I also feel like they don't want me there sometimes, right? Um, whether they say it directly or not, but yeah, I agree with you 100%. It's, it's about what we see and it's definitely systematic. Yeah, I think Mar Maurice hits on a really important point. Um, you can't be what you can't see. And I, I think fortunately for a lot of us, we've, we've been able to view black excellence. Um, my, 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 my father was the youngest of nine and every one of those, uh, um, my father's in the seventies now. And so his oldest sister was 20 years older than he is. And they, every one of them graduated with uh, a, a bachelor's degree, three of uh, six of them had master's degrees and, and three of them had uh, terminal degrees. And and so I, I was able to grow up seeing that success, but it doesn't necessarily translate when you start your own individualistic path. And uh, imposter syndrome is real. And when you are in certain spaces where uh, the faces don't look like yours, you know, it's it's difficult for you to maintain that sense of um, of of uh, importance, self-importance within yourself. And, uh, and it's difficult. Um, to keep that that level of confidence that you need to succeed so i i wholeheartedly endorse you know what maurice was saying and and and, and where you opened up the questions there mark i did want to add to that because i mean if you guys do coming up feel as if there are some insecurities that happen it seems to be that there, there should be a responsibility particularly among professional black men but black men in general to be mentors 
And, you know, one, one thing Charles Barkley said years ago was that he's not a role model. He doesn't want to be a role model. And it seems as if, I mean, one, do you guys feel like Black men should be role models so that, or mentors, so that, again, part of that imposter syndrome, part of that insecurity is not having someone to show you how to do it or to, to watch someone going through that. And if so, I mean, how do we galvanize or get Black men to actually be mentors it showed them what that means it's not just about counseling it is a little bit more than just saying here I am now come speak to me if you need to have any questions but it, it really should be more reaching back out how do we get black men to do that, that that's a difficult one um and I you know I want I applaud Maurice for his his experiences and I, I wish Richard was here Richard Bayabona um who's from Nigeria um, I think one of my Nigerian friends growing up had a big impact on me and then in college. And um, he had been exposed to so much in academics. I think he did A-levels, you know, in the English system um, in Nigeria. And he had the classes I was taking in college for chemistry and I think math, what have you, well, he had already had those in high school because, you know, he came from a family with money and he had private schooling um, there. But you know, I knew nothing about Africa at the time, and my thoughts after probably is like you know people in trees or what have you know, and and all the negative um, stereotypes. But you know, this guy comes in and he's like, man, he says, you guys are so far behind, or you know, or, yeah. he actually used to call me dumb at times, <laughs> <laughs> which was was great because you know I looked at him and I and actually I realized I was looking at him too. I'm like, hold a minute, you look just like me, you know this stuff already, but. When I, you know, got into gear and start out performing him at times because he wasn't working hard because he already knew it, quote unquote. I think he didn't realize how he inspired me because he had such confidence. I mean, and also seeing a, a young guy who father used to buy him at the time three hundred dollars suits was like just like wow. And had a relative car, all these things. I was like, man, you know, I gotta go to Nigeria because and so it just counter and, and he would still have to, you know plus someone out who was from Haiti or Jamaica or from, you know, um, or from the States who would say negative things about Africa. I mean, he would have to, you know, literally, you know, get very irate and just curse him out and tell them that, you know, look, you guys don't know nothing about, you know, Africa and go. So he, he inspired me, but I in turn inspired him to change his, his major from chemistry to dentistry. I think for the mentor, encouraging people to be mentors, I used to become very upset because, you know, I got into a group of people that were really black conscious. And my wife could tell you that when I went to medical school, she probably, I probably was a little too black conscious for her um, because she was coming from Florida State. I was coming from Florida A&M and one HBCU versus you no know, across the street, across the railroad tracks, ironically, because in a lot of Southern communities, the river railroad tracks would separate our communities or highway, the ways put highways through our communities. So I, I um, so Charmaine was, my wife was, was, was very careful and I and I would think that maybe I was a little too militant. Like you know, if you don't help another black person out, you don't stick together. Then you're a coon. You're 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 Uncle Tom, whatever you know, Uncle Tom. So I think that I used to become very upset with people who benefited from others. And there's a lot of them out there. Um, I would see black doctors who you would approach. Who didn't Clarence want to talk Thomas, to yeah. You know, or Clarence <laughs> Thomas. Or, you know, I, I, <laughs> and I and I had to learn that. You know, everyone, you know, I even mentoring at Meharry, which had a pool of black uh, medical students, 
and we were working to increase numbers in orthopedic surgery. We only make up 1.9% of orthopedic surgeons are black, board certified orthopedic surgeons. And black females are even smaller. But, you know, I found that you had a couple of people who were, who felt super special, that there was exceptional, that they were held on a pedestal, who wanted to have nothing to do with other black people, and other ones who had an inferiority complex. But I, I had to get past that idea that I had to know that I'm going to be teaching everyone the same. I had to mentor everyone, even if the person would not reach back and help someone else or doesn't care about anyone else. The fact that they're there and visible will help someone else. A kid will, he will, or she will treat someone one day, even if they don't want to be associated with anyone black, that they will be seen, wow, that person, that the position is there. The guy, uh, what's it, Grice Tyson, the astrophysicist, mm. the question for Mike Wallace was to him in the video clip was, well, you know, what do you think this does for black people? How do you think black people feel about this? He says, well, what you should be asking is what does it do for white people? Because the people who are in charge, who are, who are, who are um, making decisions and are in positions of authority need to see us, need to see black people in various positions so they don't automatically judge. And all of us on this, on this panel today have been in restaurants or walked into environments and you know the look. They, sometimes they'll stare in a prolonged fashion, I don't know, Brentwood, just to make you feel comfortable. They know you're there just to say, look, look, you don't belong. You stare back. I've been in conferences at Vanderbilt and only black person in a room many days. And you'll get some punk resident looking over, not knowing who you are and staring at you because they've never seen it before. And they'll literally be offensive to some point, to point out that literally almost say something to an individual. So I don't know, I think that trying to get people to become conscious and understand and, and pay it forward um, is difficult. Right now at a couple of our orthopedic training programs, one in particular is Howard University. They have, um, a lot of the matriculants have been um, from uh, the motherland, um, Nigeria. And they were notice, noticing that it was becoming a concern because we're finding that some Nigerians would not um, necessarily be pushing other Blacks, you know, because usually the program has always been about a third American, a third Caribbean, a third um, African, but they were not necessarily mentoring um, anyone who was not Nigerian. And so we've had to have some serious discussions about that. Look, if we bring into this program, it's, it's you know, it's for you guys coming in here. Are you going to look out for all Black people? And I think sometimes we get into these little silos at times in which we tend to, um, and I saw this when I was in one of my undergraduate schools in Miami, I would hang in various groups where I saw you had the Bahamian group here, you had the Jamaican group here, you had the, you know, the Nigerian group here, you had the Haitian group here, the Colombian group, the Cuban group here, a big salad bowl. And no one necessarily sharing information. And my son is experiencing that in Barcelona. He's in a company where there's, there's various black people working there, a few of them. But it's amazing they've been there for a year or however long, and not one person has talked to another black person, one from South Africa, one from Eritrea, and they don't interact. But the white people are free to interact and talk to each other freely. I think we have to find out a way. I have to learn how to work with the ones who is an incognito or a person who's unconscious and does not want to be black, to Clarence Thomas who doesn't want to be black and does not want to have anything in association. I have to work with a person who, who's just not secure who they are. 
had to work with a pro-black person, had to work with a person who has negative impressions of black people from wherever they may be, and bridge that gap and find a way to encourage them to, 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 to lean in on that part that says, did someone ever help you? Yes. Can you help someone else? Just help one, just one person <coughs> make it. it just, that, that's the difficult struggle I have. Just trying to find where in their in their psyche can I reach in and find them, get them to say, can I just get one person, put one student with you to work with work with you? And but they don't have to be black. But for the black ones, it's a travesty when they don't help someone else. Because maybe they've been burned. Um, black people we do each other worse than others at times. Well, you know, you make that point. I think one of the biggest things, one of the biggest criticisms that Barack Obama had from assuming the, the the highest office in the land and basically being the most quote unquote powerful person in the world for eight years, people criticized that he did not in that position do enough for black people. And I wonder how many times uh, the reason why we don't go full, full core press for at black advocacy when we assume those positions because we feel like our place is already tenuous in the first place. And if we get in there, we start pushing too many black agendas. There's always going to be some blacklash. Uh, for example, Donald Trump. <laughs> and so <laughs> we see what happens when you don't do the even even when you do it on a modest scale as as Barack Obama did. I think just his mere presence was uh, was inspiration. Uh, enough for so many of us but then when he would even speak on some black issue he would get a lot of uh, criticism saying oh he's race baiting right now and he's stirring up race wars he was the most racist president we ever had because he would talk about race issues and people will automatically label you as racist just because you're comfortable speaking about racial matters and they're not and so uh, how often how often does that play a role and and perhaps deterring you from being a little bit more proactive in advancing black people and putting those people into those positions. Thomas, in, in working in corporate America, I imagine that that's got to be a serious consideration for you. And well, but but somebody black, I think, actually helped get you into the place where you were. Yeah, um, uh, it's it's it it is very difficult, honestly, um, because the conversation requires a lot of nuance whenever you're talking about race and. White people aren't built for nuance, really, for the for the most part. Um, a, a lot of education has to go in because uh, often whites don't want to confront, you know, the things that have happened and the atrocities that have happened in this in this society. You know, I look at at what 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 went on in Germany. Um, they they have confronted the evils of the past mm -hmm. and um and and have found a way to reconcile that. And so the society is a lot healthier because of that. Um, we have not. Uh, we talk about slavery. Slavery really wasn't that long ago. Let's just be honest. Um, I, we, we, my, my grandfather's grandfather was a slave. We are not that far generation removed. And, um, and then, then as soon as slavery was over, then you, you had Jim Crow that lasted until the, almost the mid-70s, you know, which was a, a, another form in and of itself of, of, um, of, of segregation and oppression. And Coming on the heels of that, redlining, air rights, you know, all, all of these, these systems that were put in place to continue to keep us in 
why people don't understand all those nuances. You know, when they attack CRT, they attack DEI, it's because they, they, they don't want those stories told so they don't have to confront that behavior and they don't have to reconcile with what they've done to put all these obstacles in our past. Uh, and all we're asking for is equality. Just remove the obstacles. We can compete on the same playing field if you just remove the obstacles away. And, um, and, and it's just not that way. So when you're having these conversations, you have to be very wary that they don't have the background, the historical implications, the, the, they, they do not have the, the ability to understand the paths that you have that, that you may have had to walk. You know, for them, it's easy for them to say, well, 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 my family was poor and we were able to pull ourselves up just like you should have been able to pull yourself up. And they don't understand that that when you were able to pull yourself up, you didn't have a boot on your neck at the same time to keep you down. And so um, to have those conversations in a corporate setting is, it, it is very, very difficult because you know that that history is not shared and there has to be a great amount of education into those nuanced conversations. Let me even commend you for coming on the show and, and being willing to talk to that talk to yeah. talk to that extent because this issue is very real. We've had people that we've invited onto the show, but because of their you know they're they were they're high up in a position and they understand that hey my presence on something like this if I even make a conference have a conversation about it not going out on you know major media or a major news network and stirring up controversy but me just sitting around having an open conversation even just not even mentioning a company or anything uh, and and that's why I'm cautious about mentioning the names of certain companies when when I introduce people on here because the 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 opposition is real. It's real. I mean, we see it playing out today in in the public discourse about CRT and 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 how there's you know this backlash uh, against anybody who wants to bring to the forefront uh, some of the obstacles that are intentionally and or uh residually still that 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 keeps us from thriving but here's the thing I, i'm going to agree with donald trump on one thing here he made a comment i think and i can't remember exactly how he said it but he said a black man has tremendous opportunity in this country today because i think he said something if i were a black man i would really be able to excel because there's so many um opportunities that are now available now uh, maybe Maurice, you can speak to some of this, and and maybe Thomas, you can speak to some of this as well in, in terms of speaking about supply chains and how companies are looking for minority-owned businesses to actually support. Now, it seems like over the past three to five years, despite a growing opposition and resistance that a lot of far-right people are having toward creating opportunities of equality and equity. Despite that, there still seems to be this push to say, hey, we're looking for minority companies and businesses to, to really help recruit and to help uh, provide some of those independent contracts. Maurice, are you finding that when you go out as a CEO of an IT company that if you can say, hey, I'm a minority-owned business, are you still, are, are, is, is that a, do you find that to be a benefit today or is that still an impediment? Um, uh, it's not a benefit as much people would think, even in the 
even the dermatology side of the business too, that 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 business I'm I'm currently working on as well. Um, getting the the same level of contracts um, or even loans to to get equipment to be able to support these contracts that are out there, um, it, it's just not happening. Um, at least for me, in my experience, um, I, I don't want to say it's purely because of that um, race, uh, but it, it's probably possibly an impact. They, they're, they're companies that are forced to, to look for money to own because of tax breaks. Um, but at the same time, are they willing to pay or compensate um, equally to make it worth the time of the, the black businesses, right? And I know Baker can probably speak to that because I know he his, his logistics company, he was trying to get contracts and I'm, I'm pretty sure he can tell you more details about how, you know, that it just wasn't making sense financially to do so. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um, we're in a process of trying to go from a, from a standpoint of government direct contracting, but I tell you for an industry that is dominated, you know, if you look out your door, um, most of the times the person is dropping off your, I'm going to bet 50% of the time is funny that someone's black who's dropping that package off to your door. And if we're interested that's kind of dominated in numbers, by black people, um, the real money um, to be made is by the insurance companies. Even the vehicles you have to buy now is expensive, but it's the actual distributors, um, from Thomas' standpoint, that are really making it. And they just they they typically prey on a population that doesn't have a lot of options, and they're going to treat you like you're, you know, basically a second-class citizen. And I think that, you know, Mark and I both work with the correctional um, industry. And I, you know, they say that, you know, a white man with a, who is a felon can, you know, make more money than a black guy with a college education. It makes you wonder why I see, even that system, I see some disparities from a standpoint of who's doing which technical fields and where you start probing. I need to get more data, but it just seems like the, plumbing, HVAC, um, electrical, that you see um, some guys doing the facilities. And you see who's getting that, and who can come out later on and work in, a, in an industry that's that's more economically, you know, um, deserving. I think that it's, um, it's areas we have to really, those trades, uh, you know, create some more millionaires, you know, every day. You know, and I think that we're, education for us it was education because we know there's barriers in these trades in every city you go to one of my mentors said to me the other day you ever notice that these construction sites road work sites look who's holding the signs and saying stop and go and you look and look who's actually doing the work at the site and i know in his particular city and i lived in another city very similar you know they'll say well, you want to be an electrician you have to become part of the union and you can't get into the union or Teamsters or the other ones, and getting the training to um, to plumbing, um, you know, the iron workers, the those 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 are great jobs, you know. Even with the railroad, I talked to my, my buddy who works with them, and the hurdles that to go to for a, a black person, um, you know, to get these jobs is difficult. And not saying that that's not some responsibility on us, but sometimes. Uh, many times I would say that, that there's times in which you, uh, young people see these hurdles and they don't want to deal with them 
they don't want to take care of you. We grew up in an era where you were told by your parents, look, this is how it is. You got to work twice as hard. You know, this is how it is. Swallow it. Deal with it. Keep moving. Am I right, Thomas? Absolutely. So, <laughs> so, so you're talking about from the perspective of, of the workers themselves, but from the owner's perspective, uh, I, I do want to read a, um, a comment from one of the viewers. He says, yes, companies are looking for Black-owned business. We have to start putting into work now so in five years we can be ready for the volume. Uh, sometimes it's about can we handle the volume? Also, uh, when you're Black owned business the employees look like you they have to understand they have to take pride in working for your company i guess what i want to what I, I like some a lot of that comment there because what happens is i think is even when we look at the um the the relief money that just came through the ppp loans it was available to us but a lot of times as black owned businesses we didn't have the infrastructure and didn't have all the things in place to be able to to, to fully take advantage of those. And yes, there may be plenty of government contract out, contracts out there that are that are looking for minority-owned businesses, but do we have the the wherewithal to be able to once sustain and main uh to man that? And then do we have the the protocols in place? Do we know those protocols and other uh, the infrastructure that's necessary to even begin to apply for some of these contracts? And that that's maybe that's how we get uh left behind and still get overlooked and then they can still say hey we had all these opportunities for you but you just didn't take advantage of them what do you think absolutely, mark. I, absolutely mark i i agree with you we're going through that now my wife and i are both physicians we both you know are able to make it relatively you know good income but we found the money that has to go into the dot the insurance the vehicles the you know all the regulations Man, it's a cost prohibitive, and I, and I can't imagine someone, a couple guys getting together and trying to hurdle over all these parameters in order to. Uh, it, this is too many parameters, and here we are, you know, with you know a lot of education, and we look at it like, wow, this mouse is. Uh, How can they do that, Ron? How can white people do that, and we can? Well, to me, first of all, don't put them on an equal plane. To me, they've had, as as um, Thomas has pointed out, they've had a 400-year head start right. without right. having to deal with a lot of the regulations um, that we are currently having to deal with. And so to expect a Black-owned business to be on the same level as a Procter & Gamble, I don't think that's fair. Um, but at the same time, I do think, um, and I, I did want to say I disagree with your agreement of Donald Trump in that realm, considering <laughs> how he had done so much to discredit everything Barack Obama has done, as well as a lot You've of- You've been waiting to know. say that, haven't you? <laughs> I have. Like, let me make sure people don't think the roundtable agrees with that sentiment. But hey, I mean- we, I, we, we think Marcus is <laughs> Sometimes we think he pushed that. One of those 19% that pushed that Trump button. He's, he's, a, he's, a, he's a closet Trump lover. <laughs> and, uh, um, and I did want to get into that a little bit. I know we're going to run out of time, but I, I feel like a lot of times, particularly with Black men, there's a disconnect with Black men and Black women in that sense. There were a lot of Black men that supported Trump. Um, I mean, not to, of course, the level of over 50 or 60%, but when you look at like a 19% voted, 19% of Black men voted for Trump, where it's like, less than 3% of Black women are voting for Trump. Um, and, and also, even when you're talking about education, we see that there's a fall off when it comes to professional degrees of um, Black men pursuing them versus Black women pursuing them. And then when we talk about marriages, 
Um, you you know, you hear the Kanye talks about how, you know, they get successful and then they leave you for the white girl and 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 how black men are often like, well, you know, love is love. It shouldn't even matter what your race is. But yet we have these conversations about how race matters in, in our country. And so I mean, do you guys, even in that, do you feel as if there is a disconnect even among black women and black men where we're not seeing the world the same is one, I don't want to say right or wrong, but are, are you guys feeling like black women are more emotional than you or than black men? I mean, what, what are you thinking about even in that dynamic? I, I wouldn't necessarily say that there's a a, a huge disconnect, but but I, I think it has some uh, some sinister implications when you think about the the entire system of, of capitalism. And I'm probably going to say a statement that's or a series of statements that are very controversial, especially considering that I participate in the capitalist environment <laughs> for, for my livelihood. But the reality is is that the form of capitalism that we practice and have perfected in this country requires a permanent underclass. And so all the seeds of disconnect that we've been discussing in the past you know, 15, 20 minutes of this conversation are rooted in that system. So Sonia, when you talk about the disconnect sometimes between black males and black females is because when you are a participant and you start to thrive in the system of, uh, of supremacy, which is required to operate this system of capitalism, it's insidious. And to make your business thrive, you have to model it after what has already been done and has been successful. And it requires a exploitation of, of, of nature, really, to be able to accomplish those things, because you can't get the work done unless you have low paid, low skilled workers who accomplish it. And you it, and it's difficult as a business owner to reconcile that. Now, if, if, if you're white, it's not as difficult because you don't identify. But, um, and, and so I think some of our Black men have found that they can tolerate that. And it grows that disconnect. They, they, they start to ascribe to that, um, to the white patriarchal roles and then start to become um, as, as some of our, our, our house slaves did. Um, they 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 think of themselves more like the masters and not and not identify with the slaves and I think that grows the disconnect. Um, so where where black females are often on the lower end of that scale and have more empathy for the struggle of those who are performing the work, they tend to side more with the lower skilled worker and don't participate. And and don't have the um, the the they have a level of disdain for that type of behavior, and so because of that, I think that's when you start to see the divide, because there's some of us that subscribe to that is good, and 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 some of, and so it's again these are all nuances that are difficult to um, to navigate, and I think that that, that you see it playing out on on the public sphere. In, in various ways, those that those of us that are successful, to maintain a level of success, you have to participate in that program. That is just uh, the laws of this land. Um, and and how much how much intestinal fortitude do you have to participate in that type of uh, capitalistic society? I, I must say this, Thomas. I, I agree to disagree because I agree with some of what you're saying. But the, the, the low level pay part, uh, I think is not necessary. And I think there's a lot of countries that are catching on and are, and are kind of disproving that theory that you can have higher salary 
um, and still be successful, right? Um, I do agree that it is the model that we currently practice, but I don't think it's, it's the way we, we should move forward or the only way for us to be successful. Um, and yes, I know we were, we got sidetracked a little bit, but yeah, we, we do feel obligated um, to, to mentor and help others. I, I know in just being around you guys or even with, even my journey along the way, I've had people come up to me and tell me that, you know, they are inspired by, by me and my accomplishments. Some have come into IT, some have gone into management or even trying to start their own business. And I'm definitely willing to help them. Um, the the biggest struggle I feel though, it still happens is that, um, you know, that redlining that they used to do back in the day where, you know, as far as where the banks is funding uh, certain neighborhoods and stuff, it's still happening today, right? So they they, I've seen where it's more easier for companies that are similar that that are that are led by others to get the same or even more funding with less questions and less red tape than it would be for myself to get funded. Uh, um, even having an excellent credit score and excellent history, um, you know, they'll they'll give they'll give me some excuses saying, oh well, we can't qualify you for that amount, even though I can show historicals of other businesses with the same equipment increasing their revenue um, 400%, right? Um, it's So those are some of the obstacles that we have to overcome, but, but we definitely have to be unified in helping each other and just find different ways in which we can share information as well. Because in, in this hyper-connected society, there's a lot of misinformation out there and a lot of accurate information as far as relevant information is not reaching those the ears of, of, of those who need to hear it. In order for but, them to make the right informed decision. But don't we have to change some of our paradigms as well? Uh, because we have had historical paradigms that don't necessarily jive well with the capitalistic society that Thomas was talking about. Example that I like to use is that my, when I moved to Nashville, my mother and I bought a townhouse. And my mother's primary goal was to, hey, I need to get this debt paid off, to be debt free. But to be most successful in capitalism, a lot of times requires that you be willing to uh, incur a huge amount of debt. Sometimes debt, basically, as long as debt uh, debt makes uh, the system go round. I think the debt continues the system in, in capitalism. And Ronald, you were saying before that some of these things are cost prohibitive, but are they really cost prohibitive? Or is it that we just either one can't get the loans that are necessarily uh that are necessary in order to, to 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 build the practice or two is it that we're too afraid to get into that type of debt because of our mindset we you have to be debt free that has that has been taught to us or you have to you can't get all those loans you can you can't afford all of those and i'm asking this question because as a you know ron and i would talk before about how how good it is to to own your own business how freeing it is to do that but one of the things that I'm learning over the past few years is that one of the biggest impediments to the growth of my practice has been me being afraid to spend the money that's necessary to do to build the practice. And, and so instead, I'm, I'm relying on, you know, word of mouth to go out as opposed to going out and putting in uh, 10, 12, 13 percent of your budget uh, for marketing to build. Marketing, actually, when you're actively involved in marketing, it actually works for a lot of people. And, and I watch other companies that started after mine, other practices that started after mine, 
immediately thriving. I'm saying, why is that? Why are they thriving? Part of it is because they're putting the money in to um to 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 make sure that they build the company. Hey, this is one other brother finally that's, that has joined us today, and I just really need to get him in here, especially this talking our, about our this topic. President, our Presidente. Yes, <laughs> yes. Be <laughs> 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 the honorable King King of Bayamona. CP time. CP time. Right. Hey, keep time. That's where it started. Trust me. I was just buying time, hoping that he'd be able to join us. And 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 you know what? This is. And, and and frankly, this is a man who's not afraid to get out there and get the spend the money. So he came in right at the right time. People <laughs> <laughs> money. <laughs> now, King King Richard is what we oh, like no. to call it. <laughs> King hey, Richard. Yeah, right. hey, Richard, share with us your royal history, right? Your royal time. Come on now, brother. But tell us a little bit about your your history and what you do as well. Well, I'm glad to join the group. Uh, I do apologize. Um, uh, some things came up that made me late today. But um, yeah, I, uh, I grew up in uh, Nigeria um, um, to, to a couple of wonderful parents. And um, I've been in the United States now for, I think, 35 years or so. And um, my history is I, I actually studied mathematics in college and aircraft maintenance technology in the United States and found myself in the restaurant business. And um, I've been in the restaurant business now for the, the entire time I've been in the States. So I would say 35 years. And most currently I work uh, with uh, a group, Texas Roadhouse Restaurants um, in Central Tennessee and um, Mississippi and um, Kentucky. And um, the, the goal is to grow the brand I work for uh, here in the Middle Tennessee area and um, grow the concept. So that's what I do. And uh, I've been doing it for a while now with a couple other companies and uh, enjoy what I do. More importantly, I enjoy being able to grow young people and help them get started in the Russian career. And um, it's, it's my mission to, at least within the concept I work with, uh, help um, get more minorities in leadership. So that's, that's something I strive to do, and uh, we're working on diligently right now. That's now, it. You you said grow the brand. Uh, what, what practically what does that mean? Well, growing the brand means uh, building brand equity. So you know, the more the longer you you're around, the more people get to know your brand, right? And what you don't, you, growing the brand means in, increasing your footprint. So um, when I joined the company uh, 10 years back, they had a very, um, they had almost no footprint in Middle Tennessee. I, I believe they had uh, eight restaurants or so in the Knoxville area, but we only had one in um, uh, Memphis and, Hendersonville, Tennessee. And then actually they, we were unsuccessful with the one in um, Franklin, Tennessee. So uh, the mission was to come in and, and you know, reestablish the brand and, you know, get people to know the concept. And, uh, but to grow the brand, you have to build new locations, right? So um, I, that's why I come in. I, I go through and make sure, um, you know, we have viable, markets to grow based on certain um, 
you know, parameters that we look at. Um, and in doing so, we build more locations. I happen to be um, in Spring Hill, Tennessee right now, where we are gonna be building, opening up a new location uh, next Monday. Um, and that will make, I think the fifth location in Central Tennessee. So re just recently we built one in um, Hendersonville, Tennessee. And I think nine years ago, I built one in um, Clarksville, Tennessee, and then six years ago in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. So we continue to grow more outlets and in doing so, hopefully we execute our concept correctly. And as such, you get more, 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 more followers and you grow the brand, so to say. Nice. Well, when you came in, we were talking about, you know, one of the things that uh, seemed perhaps, or at least this was an idea that I was proposing, was that maybe one of the things that stopped us from growing in, in our own minority business, minority owned businesses may be our apprehensions and some of our paradigms about willingness to spend money and our ability to spend money when we start saying hey i've got two or three million dollars of debt that's a scary thought saying, to a lot of people. money but incurring debt i mean i think that's the yeah. difference it's, i think we're willing to spend money it's just the incurring of debt that's yeah. hard because when you talk about getting loans a lot of times we don't want to owe someone but to your point we we will need the loan assuming we can get it because i do think access to loan is still an issue but assuming we can get it the idea that i now owe someone seems to diminish to some degree the ownership that we feel like we have in the business. I imagine it's not inexpensive to start up a Texas Roadhouse, uh, to, to find a location and, and, and say, hey, this is an area we do the diligent, due diligence and researching the demographics of the area, the cost of the land, the cost of the building, the operational costs, getting all these things together. I, I, I imagine people don't just randomly have that kind of pocket change that they say, okay, now I've got this amount of money, I can go ahead and do this. There has to be some capital investment. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. There is a, a, a huge capital investment. And uh, there again, um, one has to be careful and I can understand how people are apprehensive about incurring debt. Um, because you have to have a business model that works, uh, which means you need to know your demographics, you need to know uh, your product or service has to be needed in that um, demographic, then you, you, you know, then you have to look at um, what locations are you, are you trying to attack and what, what are the things you look for to make um, a city or a town, a DMA, you know, what makes that viable for your concept or your business, whatever business you're trying to, to do. Uh, and so I know there are many people who start small businesses. Um, I think where we um, miss it is you have to reinvest in the small business. You don't take money out of it as much as you make. You have to keep reinvesting to make it better we say bigger, faster, stronger. So you want to be better with whatever product you, you're, you're, you're giving to the community or whatever service you want. And then from there, once you are thoroughly beaten or at least competing at a very high level with, with whatever competitors you have, then you want to be able to scale. And so that's where you look at, okay, 
for whatever business it is, it could be a coffee shop. Well, if you're doing very well, what makes you, what gives you a competitive advantage to your competitors, right? What do guests see as a, as a, as a difference to make you their choice? And once you can hone in on those things, then you can say, well, I have a viable concept or service and now I want to go duplicate or scale up to the next location. And so you look at what, who are your guests? You got to know your guests. And so do you have a great representation of your guests in that community that you want to go to? Big mistakes I see from time to time is we try to scale based on convenience. You don't scale based on convenience. You scale based on what's going what's gonna to work. There have been times I've talked to Ron in the past about where I'm going to go put a restaurant. And, you know, he's like, why? I'm like, well, because I can make money there, right? It's not whether it's convenient to me. It's where, I, where can I make money, right? So, you know, instead of being um, in Spring Hill years ago, I went down to Tupelo, Mississippi, because I could make, it's three and a half hours away from my home. Spring Hill is... 20 minutes from my home. Well, that made more sense because I saw all the things uh, that I wanted to see that would make my business viable in that little city. So same thing applies to any business. So when once you know uh, your product and you know your demographic and you know what gives you competitive advantage and you wish to scale up, you don't look for what's convenient to you. You look for what works what 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 works you know for your business and you go to that next town or next city or next area that's uh, viable and you, you you establish so one of the biggest impediments i think for most of us is the fear of failure and so i will ask you two questions what happens when you fail and two how do you assess when it's time to abandon ship and or transition is, is failure always a bad thing? Well, we'll, we'll learn from failure, right? We'll, you know, I, I had an experience um, where uh, I uh, picked a site, picked a location, and it didn't do as well as I um, anticipated. Well, that was very painful because in our model, um, we as partners are partners, true partners. So if it makes money, we make money. If it loses money, we pay money, right? And so that was very painful. But you learn from that. So I learned uh, certain things that I may have missed as far as in selecting that, you know, city, that, that um, um, particular trade area, uh, what, what's different. And so um, from learning from that mistake, which was painful, um, I was able to avert other mistakes in the future, right? So you... you because the, the concept is the same, the, the food quality was the same, but we weren't doing very well. But there's a reason for that, which I wouldn't go into at this point. However, you know, when you have failure, it's painful, but you want to push through, you don't give up. But more importantly, what I'm talking about now is how do you avert failure? You, you cannot go based on convenience when you scale up. What I've seen in some situations, in many situations, is we have one We've started a business, it's doing well. We haven't really studied why it's doing well before we try to do another one. Mm -hmm. And so we do another location 
and that location fails and sucks all the life from the first one and then you go under right so um what's going to sustain the business long term means you have to study why you're successful and make sure you don't go away from those very basic fundamentals as to why your product works and then once again you got to forget about convenience and look at what's going to be viable what what trade area meets all the spec the points of what made your first business work and then go into that trade area richard brings up a very good point honestly um uh failure is part of the process you know and uh as we teach our children um you don't want them to suffer certain things but you know that they have to go through difficulties in order to really be successful um one thing stood out for me from from this past super bowl is uh the the, the kelsey brothers were all over the place you know they, they, they've got a a, a pretty big media company that they're they're doing this 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 very popular podcast but they leaned on a lot of their grandfather's teachings and one thing that stood out to me in hearing their story was a quote from calvin coolidge that they that their grandfather forced them to learn and it's all about persistence and i think that's the only combatant for um a failure and, it, and the quote says nothing in the world can take the place of persistence talent will not nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent genius will not unrewarded genius is almost a proverb education will not the world is full of educated derelicts persistence and determination alone are omnipotent the slogan press on has solved and will always solve the problems of the human race and i really believe that you know um uh that that the semblance of thought there is that uh Fail, it takes away the sting of failure because if you know that it's coming, yeah. get up and go again is, is, is the thing that will lead to ultimate success. How do you assess when it's time, when it's time to quit to call it in? And this is just something that I keep asking myself because I watched over the past um, 15 years, for example, as I've been running my business, I'm like, it's not growing how I want it to grow. And maybe my expectations are a little bit unrealistic. Um, now, in that evaluating, you know, what I think, Richie, you made a good point. You said uh, you have to evaluate what's successful, too. Uh, but I've been evaluating what has not been successful or what are some of the impediments to my success. And, and when I've objectively looked at it, I said, OK, so these are some of the things that we did not have in place that I think should be in place. And so I'm gradually finding one thing over here to fix and then another thing over here to fix. And now finally this thing, my question is, is at what point is it that you realize and you accept there's nothing there, nothing left else to fix. It's, it's time to let this one go. And, or if you ever get to that point, obviously there were, there are plenty of businesses that fail, uh, but you have to be uh, one willing to accept that it's it's headed toward failure and then begin to make preparations maybe even for that failure I recall one uh, one of my first mentors she had an advertising company and she saw far in advance that this advertising company was going down the tubes and she actually while she was still running her advertising company she was writing the business plan for her consulting company which was going to be the next one and uh and after a period of time she was like okay it's time to close down this advertising company and move on to the next thing 
Uh, how, how does a person objectively assess when is it time to throw in the towel? Anybody? From the restaurant space, I, I think um, that's all I can speak to is the restaurant space. And, and uh, I would say you, you have to look at your competitor. Who is doing well and why? And uh, why, you know, then you look at your product and why is your product not resonating with the community or the trade area you're in, right? And once you've assessed and anal analyzed those two points uh, and you feel that uh, maybe you don't have the resources or the talent pool or know-how to duplicate what your competitor is doing well to improve your business for your trade area, that's when I think um, you 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 need to pack it pack it up and say you're gonna try something else. But the bottom line is in business all the time, successful people study other successful people to find out what they're doing better than them, so they can improve their business model. Right, and and that happens throughout you know industries. You know, you heck globally it happens between countries right you see china trying to steal what america is doing or vice versa you know there's espionage going on so i think that you know i i'm not obviously i'm not familiar with the medical space but i'll be looking at okay what is this other medical business in my space doing to do so well um what services do they provide to the trade area you know that they're in Am I in the right trade area? Um, are my services equal or better? And, um, and then if not, then what do I need to do to improve those services so they become, uh, so I become the first choice? Um, so there are several questions uh, that one needs to ask. But if you've asked yourself those questions and analyzed the competitor and you feel that, um, I just don't understand. I don't know your space, Mark, but I would mm -hmm. say, if in your space you have competitors doing well, then you can do well also. We just got to find out what they're doing different from what you're doing. And being willing to um, be facile and to pivot, be open. I think then in, our, in our medicine, it's probably the same for various industries. I think that a lot of times when I had my own chiropractic, I left the last location, but I saw people who did well, who didn't do well. But taking the time, it's so hard in medicine to find the time to study someone else's way of doing it. And maybe in, in some people's cases, I've also seen people who thought they were always the brightest bulb in the room, i.e., like Mark went to the PhD. They have all the answers. I don't have all the answers. <laughs> but no, I think that um, it's, it's hard sometimes with people in medicine because I think you're so busy to find the time to part um, any business. You're so busy trying to keep your business afloat that you don't have time to look and see, well, how is this person, that person doing it? Then you start getting into the consulting space, hiring someone to find out how to make the business better. And I see hospitals all the time paying millions of dollars for these consulting agencies to come in to tell them what to do. And then they don't listen to half the things they tell them, or they cost a lot of money. So I think that it's applicable what Richard said. I was looking at another business, seeing what they're doing. Um, and I'm in the process now of needing to spend more time looking at 
um, what makes some businesses more successful and what they're doing on the downturn. You know, we're doing it night time. What they're doing to, to push through and be, you know, just have the ability to, to, to change and pivot. So my brother owns a construction company and uh, one of the things that I said to him, and this was one of my recent revelations is that we can get so busy chasing the money that we forget to run the business and running the business is more than just collecting the money, finding the contracts, the next contract running the business is also building the foundation and building the next level for the expansion as well, because you can, if you are successful on the, on the first on the first level, you can expect that more business is coming. And if you're not prepared to be able to um, to handle that next level of business, then um, you, you you really haven't you haven't really developed. And frankly, sometimes the market changes the way that the market changes may change your approach to how you are handling the business and how you how you approach what you how you uh, present what you what you did in the past example as i look at the um um like facebook you know before you could write an ad on facebook you can promote it and it randomly went to people but they've changed the algorithms they've changed the algorithms such that now people aren't going to see your ad unless you're paying Facebook in order to see that ad. So the market has changed just because a strategy worked for you before in the past that was successful doesn't mean that it can be reduplicated again today. So instead of just chasing that money, we have to constantly be engaged, actively engaged and actually running and building the business. And as you said, sometimes, uh, Ronald, if you if you get so busy doing the operations, you you, you really don't do that. Um, and, and that's the trap that a lot of times is physicians and frankly, almost any small business owner gets into is that they don't relinquish the control to somebody else and, and, and take the bird's eye view about what's really going on with the, with the business and how is the business transitioning? What's the next level for us? What's the next, uh, the next step or the next logical progression for the business? Yeah, so great, great points, Mark. Um, I was going to say that what are your KPIs, right? Your key performance indicators, right? Um, and when was the last time you, revis you revisited them, um, take a look at them to see kind of truly how your, your business is doing? And then something that you had touched on um, in a prior discussion before you know, Richard joined is, is investment in the employees. Because remember, um, if they're not happy, um, and thriving as well within your your, your business, it can it will Im impact um, your the customers who you're servicing, right? And their experience and with them spreading the word and, and coming back or even you know spending more money and time with with, with your with whatever business or field you're in. And I'm sure even Richard could probably even talk more to that because a lot of his success when I was listening to him talk uh, when I just met him a few years ago was about how he motivated. Um, his employees um, to deliver to be the best that they, they, they can be in, in their role, and it turned the, the customers' um, perception around the, about the brand, right? So, how are we doing that, and how are we doing in those spaces? Um, will I believe affect how we grow, and then also what is our unit of measure? What are we calling success? What does success look like for us? Um, are the things that we we should definitely have to ask ourselves. Um, repeatedly because it's going to be evolving and, and moving um, mark in my 
in my opinion, right? So, you know, set it low and achievable and then keep climbing um, with each, um, that's what I'm looking for here for, with each um, change or reiteration of it. You know, keep challenging yourself forward to, to progress more beyond that one, the, the last one. Yeah. Absolutely. Gentlemen, it has been an absolute pleasure and honor to have you all on here. We ran a little bit, well, we ran a lot longer than we usually do, but uh, with the wealth of experience and, and wisdom uh, for each of you here, I, I felt it was necessary to continue on. And I didn't want to end this conversation, even though uh, our co-host Sonia had to to uh, dip out on us though but thank you so much for your friend <laughs> thank you so much for your friendship your wisdom your encouragement your accountability all of these things that uh that you all uh provide to enrich my life and also uh, hopefully and i'm sure that our viewers and listeners uh lives will be enriched by some of the from some of the wisdom you shared here as well we appreciate you joining us here on the roundtable console thanks Mark. appreciate you thank you Yes. Thanks so much for Yes. So thanks to everybody for tuning in to the Roundtable Consult. You can catch us here every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Central Standard Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can also catch us on thestarradio.com and on your favorite podcast listening platform. We will be here again next week, bringing you the very best from the Roundtable Consult. You all have a good day. This has been another episode of the Roundtable Consult. Listen to this or other episodes at your convenience on your favorite podcast directory or listening app. Or catch us live every Saturday morning, 10 a.m. Central Standard Time, 11 a.m. Eastern at facebook.com forward slash roundtable consult. Tune in live and join the conversation.